0: morning church family. When you were a child, did you ever do the spot the differences puzzles? I may be dating myself here, but maybe you had a highlights magazine or a a newspaper. Some of you remember those. And you you would have two images and you would compare the two images and you'd see, all right, what are the differences between picture one and picture two? And you go back and forth and normally it was inconsequential things. You know, three tree branches here and only two here, four birds and five birds, and you'd count and you'd study and you'd, you'd find the differences, and it was a good way to keep kids entertained on the car ride or at the doctor's office. Well, this morning we're going to be looking at chapter uh, 43 here. And chapter 43 is very much the second image to chapter 42. We're going to see a repeat of very similar events, but there are several details that have changed. God has worked in the lives of our cast of characters. Things have changed. Things have moved and shifted. And it's in those differences between these two chapters that we're going to see God bringing out very important messages for us today. So I want to begin now by Briefly reviewing what we looked at last week, last week's set of events, so that as we look at chapter 43, we can look back at chapter 42 now with fresh eyes and see how God is moving and changing events. So if you remember back in chapter 42, the famine has come. All of the land is now without food except the land of Egypt, where God has placed Joseph, where Joseph has saved for seven years, now abundant amounts of grain and is able to sell it. And so Joseph's brothers come to Egypt, not knowing he's there, but kind of fearing and with a little bit of a dread of a curse in Egypt. They come and they see all the other Canaanites going forward and buying grain. They're like, All right, so we can just go and buy grain. But then this, this angry Egyptian man who they don't even know is their own brother, who they bow before, takes a dislike to them. And he accuses them of being spies, of being dishonest men, being the kind of men who would take advantage of others. And they say, no, we're honest men. But Joseph knows they're lying. He's watched them take advantage first of him, of course, but also take advantage of others in the past. And so they stand before him and say, we're honest men, but he knows they're not honest men. So he locks them up. He says, okay, if you're honest men, let's prove your words. You say you have one brother who was left behind. One of you go get your brother. Go get this Benjamin that you claim to have. And none of the the brothers are willing to go. And so Joseph is filled with fear because maybe Benjamin is not alive anymore. Maybe the relationship between their dad Jacob and the brothers has become so strange, so messed up and broken, that no matter what they say, Benjamin will never come. Has it got to the point, really, where Jacob would rather lose ten more sons than lose Benjamin? Has, Has the family devolved this far? So after three days, you'll remember that Joseph makes a new offer. All right, I will keep one of you back. I will keep Simeon locked up, but the rest of you are to go. Take food to your families, feed your families, but do not return without Benjamin. If you bring Benjamin back, I will give Simeon back, and I will give you, you will be allowed to buy more food. But if you do not bring Benjamin, you cannot get more food. You will not get your brother back. And so he gives them this solemn warning. He sends them back, minus a brother with food, and he makes it tricky here. He knows these are the kind of men to take advantage of people. So he puts, money, he puts their money back in their sacks and sends it off with them to test them and see, has God worked in their lives? Have they changed? Will they, these brothers who used to, to take advantage of people be honest and bring the money back? Have these brothers who, who, who sacrificed and sold their brother into slavery, will they work together with Benjamin now to rescue Simeon? Will the, the brothers who sell out now be the brothers who rescue? Will they be the brothers who profit now be the brothers who are honest and bring the money back? These tests are set before us. And they return and they spot the money. And instead of immediately going back to Egypt to make things right, they, they run to their dad and they're like, oh, we don't want to, t- we don't want to talk about this. How, how, how could God do this to us? How could God? And they, they begin to have kind of a pity party for themselves. And their father's response is not, we must go and rescue Simeon. But instead, he declares Simeon dead. He, 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 the idea that his son is now being held hostage by this Egyptian, instead of inciting him and incensing him, instead of rallying the family together to we're going to go and get Simeon, we won't rest until our brother is recovered. We're not losing another one. He immediately writes Simeon off. Reuben makes a grandiose attempt of, of I will take Benjamin back and I will do it and you can kill my sons if I don't. And he calls his bluff and says, no, Simeon. Or no, no, Reuben, Simeon is dead. We're just going to, to call it at that. And then we saw that they began to ration their food and to pretend and kind of hope that the famine's going to end and that they can just pretend that everything's okay. And, and we ended last week's passage on a really heart, heart, like, like, just curling note of they're going to not go rescue Simeon right away. They fail every single test that Joseph sets before them. He's trying to seek reconciliation. He's trying to look for change in their lives, and yet they're unwilling to change. The stubbornness is there. The sin is there. The generational favoritism, their their desire for comfort and to pretend that everything's okay when it's not has has caused their family to come to an even worse state. So why Joseph is preparing the land of Goshen for them, preparing blessings for them. We saw that they were deprived of all of these amazing blessings, deprived of the reunion because they were simply unwilling to address the sin in their lives. But thankfully, the story does not end there. And God is too kind to allow the famine to end early. And eventually the food does run out. And that's where we come to our text this morning's passage. Look with me as we look at verse 43. Because now the brothers need to go to Egypt again. And what we'll see in this passage, last week we saw the the devastating effects of sin. This week, what I want you to see is that God is going to be the one to work healing and to change stubborn hearts. So follow along as I read uh, chapter 43, starting in verse one. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had bought from Egypt, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. (coughs) Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told you was in an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know what he said, bring your brother down? And Judas said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand, you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man. A little balm, a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go to the man may God almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin and as for me if I'm bereaved of my children I am bereaved so the man so the men took this present and they took double the money with them and Benjamin they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph <coughs> then Joseph said to Benjamin with them and he said he then Joseph saw Benjamin was with them and he said to a steward of his house bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men to, uh, they are to dine with me at noon The men did as Joseph told and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us and make us servants and seize our donkeys." So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house. And they said, "'Oh my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. "'And when we came to the lodging place, "'we opened our sacks. "'And there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, "'our money in full weight. "'So we have brought it again with us, "'and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. "'We do not know who put our money in our sacks.' "'And he replied, "'Peace to you, do not be afraid. "'Your God and the God of your father "'has put treasure in your sacks for you. "'I received your money.' And he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet and they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon. For they heard that he should eat bread there. When Joseph came home and brought into the house to him the present that, that they had with them and bowed down to them to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father, is still well. He is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? God, be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion, grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food and they served him by himself, and they by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for this is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as many of theirs. And They drank and were merry with him. This morning, I'm going to take this passage in four, four sections. First, we're going to look at verses 1 through 10. We'll see Judah's plea. Then we'll look at verses 11 through 14, God, chart, God, how God has changed Jacob. Verses 15 through 25, how God has changed the brothers. And then finally, we'll see Joseph's feast in verses 26 through 34. And in all these passages, we'll see how God has begun to heal these relationships and how he's changing these stubborn-hearted men. So look first with me at, our, at verse 1. We see that they've run out of food. The famine is still continued and they're finally out of food. And, and Jacob begins the conversation with this half-hearted attempt. Go buy us a little more food from Egypt. As if buying a little food from Egypt is like a, a, an escape clause. You know, maybe we can get a little bit of food and buy us some more time to decide whether or not we want to send Benjamin as a rescue for Simeon. He hasn't made up his mind yet. He wants to see if we can delay just a little bit longer, if they can kind of keep this status quo that shouldn't be there going just a little bit longer. And Judah finally, in verse three, puts his foot down. He says, no, dad, that's not an option. We're not gonna go all the way to Egypt, waste food and water to get there, only to be turned around to have to come back and get Benjamin and make another trip. That's, that would be a waste of our time. It won't work. We're not going to do that. And so he speaks truth to his dad. And verse 10, I think, like I said last week, is so important. They have delayed twice now the, lo- the length of the journey. So from, from their perspective, they've been, they've been rationing the food. And from Joseph's perspective, you know, he sent his brother out with food and he saw how much food they have. It's been twice as long now. They should have been back already. And so you can only imagine how Joseph is waiting and wondering, what's become of my family? The Canaanites who come to buy food have come two or three times. My family's only come once. They bought enough food for, you know, maybe it was a few weeks or a few months, and it's been double that amount of time, and they haven't come back. What has happened to my family? Aren't they going to ever even try to rescue Simeon? And and, and you can only imagine how worried he must be from his perspective. Of course, the brothers don't know this. All they see is that they're slowly, slowly starving to death, and they have children. And and Jacob has, has delayed and stretched out this process. And so now they have to confront their father. And I think, I think this conversation that Judah has with his father can be a, a first application for us because Judah has to have a very difficult conversation with his dad. And unfortunately, all of us in different seasons of our life will have to have hard conversations, sometimes with our parents, sometimes with siblings, other family members. Maybe it's a conversation with a professor, classmates, a boss or a manager at work, an authority figure who, who is caught up in either sin, the consequences of sin, or, or just becomes stubborn on a path that is unhealthy. And there has to be a conversation. Hey, what is happening in our relationship right now? In our family dynamic, our church dynamic, our work dynamic, our school dynamic, this is unhealthy and it cannot go forward. And so, and so Judah must engage Jacob with this hard conversation. And the way he engages them, I think, is, is a good example to us of how do we have those awkward, hard, awful conversations that none of us want to have, and yet because we live in a broken world, very likely all of us will have these kind of conversations at some point. So I want to take a moment and highlight and break down how does he talk to Jacob? How does he talk to his family patriarch who's caught in sin and who's leading the family in a bad and painful and very self-destructive direction? He's got children now who don't have enough food because his father refuses to move forward. And so what does he do? Well, first thing he does is he talks respectfully to his father. And I I think it's worth noting that he he does have this conversation. Think about it. It would be so easy for Judah to go to his brothers, go to Benjamin and say, look, if we don't go to Egypt soon, we're going to starve. Dad's being stubborn. Let's go behind dad's back. That's an easy conversation. That's the easy way out. And yet he recognizes that that is not the right thing to do. He needs to bring his father into the conversation. Jacob needs to make the choice. Jacob's obsession with Benjamin, his idolization of Benjamin, his his trusting of Benjamin being his heir now, has put the family in danger. And so this decision for Benjamin to go to Egypt needs to be Jacob's decision. And so he honors his father by allowing his father to be the one to make that decision. The second thing that he does, as he's respectful to his father, is he states the facts. And he lets him know, look, if we do not bring Benjamin, we will not get food. There is no point in you sending us without Benjamin. That won't work. And he doesn't doesn't editorialize it. He states what is clearly going to happen one way or the other. He doesn't call his father a fool. He doesn't rub it in his face. He doesn't make big, grandiose statements. He simply states what is true. And it's, it's worth noting thirdly here that he doesn't waste time blaming others. It's You'll notice Jacob's response immediately upon facing facts. Jacob wants to talk about blame. He wants to talk about what ifs. What if you guys had just not mentioned you had a brother? Then we wouldn't be in this mess. It's, it's your fault we're here. He wants to immediately go back to the past, play a what if game, and start blaming and, and dredging stuff up. And... and this is so true in our own lives, isn't it? This is true in our own hearts, in the hearts of our own family members. When hard situations come, where do we always want to go? Well, what if this hadn't happened? What would you have done if I had done this? What, let's, let's go back and, and rerun the scenario a few more times. And this is, of course, where Jacob takes things. He takes things right off into the hypotheticals. He takes things right off into the, how do we start putting the blame out? How can I make you feel bad for doing this to me? And Jacob shuts him down. And Jacob doesn't doesn't throw the blame back on him. He says, look, there's no blame to be had. No one knew this was coming. And this is what has happened. So now we need to move forward with the decision. He doesn't try to make Jacob feel bad in return. He doesn't retaliate against his father. He simply says, look, you can, we can talk blame all day, but that's not going to feed our children who are starving. We need to take Benjamin to Egypt. And he, he moves the conversation forward. And he recognizes the stakes. Fourthly, he's recognizing it, it's going to be hard for Jacob to let go of Benjamin. Losing, jo, losing his first, first son, losing, uh, losing Joseph, was devastating to Jacob. This has dramatically shifted his personality. If you remember Jacob earlier in our story as we followed his whole life, he was the scheming, the wily one. He was the one who always had a plan. He was the one who got it over on his brother Esau multiple times. He's the one who had to figure out his way around Laban for all of those years. And then when his son was taken away from him, ever since then all he's been able to do now is cling to Benjamin. He's gone from being somebody who who was wily and rebellious to being a man who followed God to now shifting to a man who is so obsessed with his legacy needs to go to Benjamin, to his favorite son, that he's lost sight of God. And and Judah is recognizing this. He's recognizing his dad needs to make a shift. His dad needs to come back to God and let go of Benjamin. And that it's going to be devastating to him to let go of something that he's become idolatrous to him. And and you'll note too that as his dad begins to present ideas, the the next thing he does is he's willing to work with Jacob. So Jacob wants to send a gift? Sure, dad, you want to put a gift and involve that? Absolutely, I will take your gift to this man. And and more importantly, he's willing to take the blame, but only if the plan fails. And see, this is where he's different. This is our big difference here. One of our first differences between what Reuben said last time. Reuben was ready to put his own children up on like the chopping block and say, all right, you hold my children hostage and I'll go and rescue Simeon. And he got called out for that bluff. Judah does not put his own children on the line. He doesn't put himself on the line because the fact that they're all out of food, all of their lives are already on the line already. There doesn't need to be a hostage exchange here. They are brothers in a family. They should be able to work together as a family to go on the rescue mission, and no one should have to die to go rescue Simeon. He's bringing things back into reality in in, in a healthy way that a healthy family should conduct business. And so he says, look, if there is blame, if this plan fails, if Benjamin doesn't make it back, I will take the blame. Not you may kill me, not you may kill my family, not anything dramatic or grandiose, but a simple recognition of, look, I will take the blame if the plan fails, but I'm not going to assign blame because we haven't even started the plan yet. And so he's, he's, he sets the stakes back to a reasonable place. He moves the goalposts back to where they belong and stops blowing things out of proportion. And so he sets things very clear with his father. And it's worth noting two more things that might be a little less obvious. The first is he doesn't get his brothers involved. You notice that he says that this is a deal between, this is an agreement between you and me. Judah and Jacob are making this arrangement. He's not bringing the other brothers in on this. They're going to go with him, but they're not part of the deal. Why is that? He's simply he's not complicating things. Because, yes, his dad might trust him, but maybe he trusts Levi a little bit less. And maybe if, if all of them are involved, it'll feel like a conspiracy. Maybe it'll feel like the siblings ganging up on him. But he says, no, this is between you as a man and me as a man. Me as a son who respects you, you as the father who needs to make a tough decision. And so he keeps the decision clear and distinct for his father's sake. The other thing he does, and I think this is interesting, is that he doesn't go deep into the past. It would be really easy here for him to dive into all of the horrible things that Jacob has done throughout his entire life. You know, dredge up all of those mean, scheming things his dad did and say, look, You were a mean, horrible, scheming person. You deserve this. You deserve to lose Benjamin. How dare you play favorites for decades with your children and and get us to this point. This is your fault. He doesn't dredge up Jacob's past, but he also doesn't dredge up his own past. He doesn't at this point repent of what he did to Joseph. He doesn't say, you know, your son Joseph, you lost him because of how badly you treated me, and it caused me and my brothers to turn against him. And that's your fault, or that's our fault. He doesn't get into that blame game. He recognizes there's a situation at hand. We are starving, our children are starving, and we need to move forward as a family to go rescue Simeon and get the food and go to Egypt. There will be a time for their family to deal with past sins. There will be a time of repentance, a time of confession. But in this moment, that's not the right place. He recognizes that there's a decision that needs to be made. And so the family rallies around this decision. And he makes it clear and simple. He's respectful to his father, but he's also very deter- very, very, clear with his father. He's not going to allow his father to play games with the family while the, child- the, the grandchildren are starving. And so he provides us this picture of being firm but gentle, resolute but compassionate, willing to understand the stakes but determined to to help the family move forward. And and, and Judah, in this moment, shows us why he is going to be the one to be leading the family forward from this point. He's showing us why he's going to be the line of kings. He's going to be the line of leaders. We're going to see even more development from Judah. In future chapters, but this is the beginning of us starting to see Judah not just as one of the other sinful brothers, but as the, as the next family leader. And the way that he honorably in, and intentionally engages with his father. So, so that's, how, that's how Judah is engaging in this very difficult, very painful family, family drama. Let's look at how, how Jacob responds to it. How does Jacob respond to this really hard truth? Look with me now at, verses, at, at the next set of verses here, verses 11 through 14. Jacob, Jacob responds with, with three things. He recognizes the truth of what his son is saying. He, he responds with three things. First thing is a gift. He's like, all right, you guys can go, but I'm sending a gift. I'm going to put together some stuff and I'm going to send a gift. The second thing is he gives him financial advice. Take double the money. We can't be playing around with that money extra money that we got. You're taking that money back in full, and you're taking back a new set of money to buy food this time. And the third thing he sends is what? He sends Benjamin. And and I want to look at those in just a little bit more detail here, because I want you to catch this. The first thing, this gift. Uh, He sends a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. So honey and uh, gum and myrrh being some incense, and then uh, pistachio nuts and almonds. This sounds like a kind of a silly little gift basket almost. It, it's, it's worth noting how kind of oddly absurd this, this gift that he's sending. There are a lot of gifts given in Genesis, and this is one of the smaller ones. If you remember when, when Abraham had a small lunch for his visitors chapters ago, maybe months ago now, I guess. Uh, he wound up making hundreds, like dozens and dozens of cakes and meats and all of this, this big elaborate feast. And Jacob now is presenting this gift. He's presenting a very small gift because this is to show us that he's, he's losing his fortune. This is about all he has left. The goodness, the fruit of the land is dried up. This is probably his last little bit. This is the last of his bedtime snack nuts the last of his honey, the last of all of the little bits of goodness that that he has because he's the patriarch and nobody else has any of this stuff left. And he's taking the last little bits of the things that he has, his comfort items, and he's sending them to this harsh Egyptian man who's holding his son hostage. And I think there's something telling to this because Jacob's trust was that he was going to give his massive inheritance to his son Benjamin. And he was clinging to Benjamin as his hope And now as the famine is taking away all of his wealth, taking away all of his his treasures, his trust in Benjamin has gotten him nowhere. And he's he's recognizing that trusting in worldly riches, trusting in the wealth of the land around him, has gotten him nothing. And so he's giving of his own wealth. His guile. He's been known for his guile. He tricked Esau twice. He tricked Laban a couple of times. He, he, He managed to get away from from that whole situation, and we spent a lot of chapters talking through that, he recognizes that guile is going to get him nowhere. Let us deal honestly with the money. Bring back all the money, full weight. Let's not play games with the scales. Let's not try to get a bargain. We're going to take the money, and we're going to deal honestly. So he's, he's turning from his old path of how can I trick people and get, up, get one up on people? And he's going to deal honestly now with these Egyptians by bringing the money. And finally... Most importantly, verse 14. I think verse 14 here is the most important verse of this entire chapter. And I want you to hear verse 14 in the context of chapter 42, 36. Like I said, listen to these two verses next to each other and listen to how different they are. This is Jacob talking in both verses, but listen to the differences. So, first 42, 36. And Jacob, their father, said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come on me. Three things. He's blaming his sons. This is your fault. Simeon is dead. And I'm the victim in all of this. That, that's his main statements here. You guys screwed me over. You guys messed me up. Simeon is as good as dead to me. I don't care about my son who's in, in Egypt. I'm the victim, poor me. All of his eyes are. On, his, his eyes are on himself. This has come upon me. You hear his heart there. You hear how all of the sin and the lies he's believing, that's where Jacob is. Now listen to where Jacob is now. 43:14: May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. All three things have been reversed. He says, may God grant you mercy. That's important. He didn't say, Judah, don't you dare screw this up. Judah, my trust is riding on you. I'm I'm counting on you, Judah. No, he takes his trust off of his sons. He takes his, his eyes off of himself and his sons. Finally, he's placing his eyes back on the Lord. He says, if this thing is going to happen, it's going to happen because God is faithful. And so he finally, God brings him to the end of himself. He stops running from God. He looks to God and says, God Almighty is going to be the one who has mercy. And so he turns his eyes off of his sons and puts his eyes back on God, finally trusting God again. And then he says, your other brother in Benjamin, he's admitting here he was wrong. He called Simeon dead. And now he's saying, I want Simeon back. And you'll notice that he says he wants mercy for all of them. Remember in the last chapter, he sent the brothers out as if they were expendable. He wasn't praying over his sons as they went to Egypt. He said, go forward. I've got Benjamin. Benjamin is safe, so that's what matters. You guys go get bread. And whoever comes back with bread, well, I'm glad you guys made it back with bread. Now he's sending his sons out. And he's trusting all of his sons, Benjamin and the others, to the Lord. And there's a trusting of God of his whole family. He's, he's, he's switched his eyes off of his circumstances. He's looking to the Lord and saying, God, you are in charge of my whole family, my whole family. Not just God, watch over Benjamin. God, watch over all of my sons. God, bring back Simeon to me. I was wrong. Simeon is not dead. Simeon is in need of rescue. And it was wrong of me to wait, wait and not rescue him. And so he acknowledges that Simeon needs rescuing. He's, he's stating, his, in stating it this way. He's saying, I was wrong. He admits his fault. And then finally, that last line. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And this is the opposite of how could this happen to me? Because how could this happen to me? He's looking at God and saying, God, I'm discontent with what you've done. If you were in Sunday school this morning, we talked about discontentment. I, how dare you do this to me, God? And instead what he says is, God, if, if, if you punish me, if none of my children ever come back, I accept that. I accept that I am deserving of punishment. I am accepting that I have sinned against God. If this is the consequences that God wants for my life, I accept the consequences of me losing all of my children. Benjamin and the others. And he's willing to be at the place in his life or whatever circumstances God gives him, he is going to accept those consequences. He has finally opened up his life. He's not trusting in his guile. He's not trusting in his legacy, his inheritance in Benjamin. He's not trusting in him figuring things out. He's trusting that God is going to sustain his sons, and that whatever happens will be because God decides for it to happen. And in him trusting God fully with all of his life, he's opening his hands. And ironically... And beautifully, because he reaches this point, because he's willing to let all of his wealth go, all of his sons go, all of his, his plans and his scheming go, God is going to reward him magnificently. Uh, we'll, we'll see here in a few chapters. He sends off this, this small gift, remember, you know, the, the little bit of nuts and the, the honey. You don't, you don't see that in like a little like Walgreens gift basket or, you know, one of those gift baskets you see at the stores and it's like, I don't know, it's a... He got all the honey here and the nuts here. You know, he's got this little gift he sent. He sends out this little tiny gift. He sends all of his sons out. What he has no idea, what's coming back to him, is 11 sons with the promise of the 12th being still alive. He couldn't even begin to hope that that's true. And and to prove that Joseph's still alive, Joseph's going to prove that he's still alive by sending donkeys laden with gifts, wagons of gifts. He sends out the last of his little bit in this little gift basket. And he's going to get back cartloads of the wealth of Egypt. The most luxurious foods are coming back to him. He doesn't know it yet. He doesn't realize that in giving his life to God and surrendering to God and saying, God, my family, my legacy, my plans, they're all in your hands. God is going to abundantly bless him beyond his wildest dreams. Everything that he needs is going to come to him, but first he has to surrender his life. First he has to allow his sons to go and allow his sons to also be changed. And I don't want us to miss this simple application here. As we look at these two passages, we look at his bitterness of this stubborn old man. And there may be stubborn old men in your own lives. Maybe, maybe in your own heart, even if you're not a man, and maybe if you're not old, you're a stubborn old man at heart. And yet, God changes him. God moves him. And only, only God can do that kind of moving. Only God can bring him to a place where he's able to say, God, whatever happens, happens. If I am bereaved, I'm bereaved. You know, Joe, Joe, he could have said here, I'm going to never forgive you for this, Jacob, uh, Judah. I'm never going to forgive you, Judah, if you screwed this up. He could have said, I, I'm going to curse God because God has brought me to the state, but he doesn't. He accepts God's will for his life. He accepts what God is doing. He stops running from God. There's a simple application here I don't want us to miss. And it's God changes stubborn people. God doesn't give up on stubborn hearts. God moves in ways and changes people who we and the world look at and say, that person is unchangeable. So friends, if there's someone you're praying for, if you have a family member or family members, if you have a friend a colleague, a classmate, someone in your life who is so stubborn, who refuses to listen, who refuses to hear, keep praying for them. God can change them. If God can change stubborn Jacob's heart, this wily, old, grouchy schemer, he can change your friend, your loved one, the person you care for his heart too. Keep praying, keep waiting, keep watching for God to work. Take courage from this verse as we see God change Jacob's heart. Because if God can change his heart, he can change anyone's heart. God can work and move. And friends, if you're the one running from God, if you're the one who is angry at God for the past, angry at God for the circumstances, recognize this, that God is calling you to stop running from him. That you can't outrun the famine. But instead He is calling you not to run and to be angry and to blame him, but to put your life and trust in him so that he can then turn and bless you. You're not running from the the cursings. You're not running from the famine. You're running from the blessings that he would have for you. And so I'd encourage you, if you are running from God, to come back, like Jacob, to confess your sin, confess where you have lied and manipulated your own understanding of reality, and said, God, I am trusting you. Whether, Whether I am bereaved or whether I am blessed, I am trusting you with my life. There's a beautiful picture here we see that God works through Jacob finally coming to a place of humility here in his old age. You think about it. It's been 20 years now that he's been bitter and angry about the the supposed death of of Joseph. And yet God is now, at 20 years later, helping him to come to the end of himself, to let go of idolizing and holding too tightly of Benjamin, and to trust him fully. And so we see God has changed Jacob, Jacob. Stubborn old man. Now let's look at verses 15 through 25 and see how God has begun to change his brothers as well. Our scheming, crazy brothers who, let's be honest, take after their father. These men who have, who have sold their brother into slavery, who have, who have sacked towns, who have taken advantage of other people. Judah himself taking advantage of his own daughter-in-law. And so we see the brothers going with Benjamin into Egypt. And, and Joseph immediately spots them, finally. And his, his response when he sees them, he counts 11, there's Benjamin, it's time for a feast. He says, all right. They brought Benjamin back. We need to have a feast. We are overdue to celebrate something. So he says, steward, I want you to redirect them to my house. Send them to my house and prepare, prepare a big feast for them. And so the steward, steward tells him, all right, guys, you're, you're not going to get grain right now. You've got to go to the house of of the second in command of all of Egypt. And we're going to have have lunch together. And instead of seeing it just as a lunch invitation, the the brothers are absolutely terrified. They're sure they're about to get jumped and enslaved. This is gonna go down so badly, they completely miss the idea that this this celebratory feast is about to happen. They're missing clue after clue that this is their brother that they're dealing with. And and for us, it's kind of obvious and, and easy to spot, okay, this is clearly Joseph. But they're, they're still missing the clues. But notice their heart. Notice again the change between their behavior this time and last time. Remember when they had found the money at the, at the rest stop? They'd run home with it. They didn't go back to Egypt and were honest. And now, as, as they approach the steward, they're like, we need to make sure the steward understands we brought the money back. So they run to the steward and say, we have brought back the money. We are honest men. We brought our brother Benjamin. We did everything we were supposed to. Yes, we took too long, but we did it. We we fulfilled our promise. We are are not taking advantage of people. We are not spies. And so they go to the steward and they they, they present all this stuff. And the the steward gives them another another big clue that they miss. He says, look, we received the money for your first purchase. That, That was taken care of. Somebody else paid that bill. And he gives credit to God. And what, he, what he's saying here is that Joseph is in charge of all the grain of Egypt. And if he says it's paid, that's good enough for me. And he is God's servant. And God's servant has paid for all of, your, all, of, all of your food that went to your family. God is watching over your family whether you realize it or not. Even while you guys were in sin, God was watching over your family. The food on your table was still coming from God. Even while you were wrapped up in sin, the small blessing that you were rationing unnecessarily was a blessing from God. It was paid for already. There wasn't an outstanding bill that you thought was there. And he's telling them and pointing this out this. And to, to help. And at this point, Simeon is brought back before them. They see their brother. They're reunited. They're relieved to see, here is our brother who's lost. And maybe at this point, they could have taken Simeon and ran home, but they don't. They, they take dad's gift. They pre- prepare it. And they're, they're getting ready to bow down again and present this now before the supposed Egyptian ruler. And Joseph comes home. So the, brother, the brothers have changed. They are, they are bringing their Benjamin. They are Benjamin's protectors now. And, and they've brought the gift. They've brought the money. They have, they've shown themselves to be ch- beginning to change men. So Joseph comes home and the feast begins. And of course, verse 27, his, his question, his, always his first question is what? Is my, he's, what he's really saying is, is my dad still alive? Is my hope of a reunion still around? Can, did dad die during all of that long, awkward stretch of time? And no, his dad is still alive. Joseph's prayers are answered. There's still a great chance for him to reunite with his father. And he sees Benjamin, and he, he, he gets this beautiful statement out, and he's, he's so glad, grateful that he has to run in the other room and cry again, wash his face, and come back out. And he's like, all right, serve the food now. And there's, there's now this feast. And, and this feast is, is significant for several reasons. The first is the feast is, a, is, is his celebration that the process of restoration is beginning. There's a beginning restoration. And so he, he throws this feast to celebrate. And this is a reminder. You know, we, we see a feast in the, the story of the prodigal son. A calling home of the one who was lost. He says, my brother Benjamin was lost, so I am celebrating that. His brothers were estranged, and now they are showing signs of change and coming closer. And he's celebrating that. And the feast is used to say that that restoration, the repentance of sin, is something we're celebrating. And this is something we know is celebrated in heaven as well. We're told that upon entering heaven, we'll be entering into the marriage feast of the Lamb. Not the marriage ceremony of the Lamb, the marriage feast of the Lamb. There will be a rejoicing, a feasting, a let's get together over food and celebrate what God has done that happens upon our restoration, our renewal of relationship with Jesus. And there's an excitement here in this feast. Now, this meal is set up in a very interesting way. Did you notice the the table arrangement? It's, It's kind of odd and kind of funny. You see, Because Jacob is not Egyptian by birth, he has to eat separately. He's also eating separate because he's the master, which is probably why his brothers miss this. So he eats separate at his own table. And then down the line, you have all of his Egyptian, kind of his court, all of his assistants and aides and people. They're arranged by rank. And then at the other end of that is all of the the non-Egyptians who can't eat with the Egyptians. So the brothers, and they're arranged from oldest, so from Reuben all the way down to youngest, which is Benjamin. So they're arranged in rank as well, too. And as with most ancient societies, the food is brought out. So you serve the best food to the master's table, and then it kind of proceeds down. So if you're at the best table, you get the good stuff. If you're at the back end, you get the stuff that's kind of like whatever the leftovers are. So you kind of wind up eating whatever's left on the serving dishes as they come down. So the food is kind of coming down the, down the line. And you know, Joseph gets the best of little bits of everything. And then it goes, and the Egyptians take what they want. And then it would go down. But, but Joseph, delighting that his brothers are there, kind of skips the Egyptians over here. And he begins to send food directly from his table, past the Egyptians, straight to his brothers. And, and they're, served in, they're served in birth order. He's recognizing the birth order. So Reuben goes first and gets the first nice big piece. And then the food goes down. But... Joseph makes sure that Benjamin gets five times the amount of everybody else. So he's getting a big helping plate. You know, the little brother is now getting spoiled again. Why does Joseph do this? Think about it. Because he wants to know what are his brothers going to do if Benjamin gets favoritism treatment again? How are they responding to favoritism? That was the thing that got him thrown in that pit at the beginning and started this whole process. He wants to see if Benjamin is treated generously, are the brothers going to grumble and complain? Look at verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portions were five times as much as any of theirs. And what? The brothers grumbled? The brothers complained? The brothers made snide remarks? No! They drank and were merry with him. They're still rejoicing together and enjoying the feast. There's no reaction. There's no response. Simeon's not complaining. He's just grateful to be out of prison and see everybody again. Reuben's having a good time. Levi's having a good time. Judah's having a good time. Everybody else is having a good time. The, the favoritism that, that dad had enforced at the table of some sons getting more food out of birth order has, 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 not, has evaporated, that, that, that bad dynamic. This is probably the first time all 12 brothers have eaten together and gotten along. You know, this is, this is a, a, a historical event. The only person missing, of course, is Jacob. But the family is eating together, and it's not being marked by, by divisions and by fighting. And, and Joseph is seeing change in his brothers. Here are his brothers rescuing Simeon, protecting Benjamin. So why doesn't he reveal himself yet? Well, remember verse 10. They delayed until they were starving, and he knows it. Some of this was just by necessity. They had to come to Egypt eventually. They had to get food. And so he's going to do one more test. Next week, we'll see his next test. He's got to see are the brothers just protecting Benjamin? Are they just rejoicing because they're happy to finally have a big, full meal that they haven't had in months? Or have they really changed? You know, it's more than just do they have that worldly sorrow or are they sorry for the consequences. He wants to see godly change. So he's going to provide one final test for them to pass, one final chance to prove that they are really going to protect and love their brother Benjamin. Will they fight for Benjamin? Will they, will they stand up for Benjamin? Because if they're the kind of brothers who will stand up for Benjamin, they're the kind of brothers he can finally reveal himself to, finally be reunited for, finally finish the process of forgiveness with. And so there's going to still be one more test that we'll see next week. But as we see from this passage, God is working on this family. And, And as we close this morning, I want you to be encouraged that God works in stubborn families. Maybe you come from a stubborn family. God can work on stubborn families. God can work in stubborn hearts. Maybe you have a stubborn heart. I know I have a stubborn heart. And praise God, God worked on my stubborn heart. And and, and if there's someone in your life that you're praying for, if if there's stubbornness in your own heart that you're fighting against, be encouraged. God works on stubborn hearts. And so we see Jacob has finally let go after decades of idolizing Benjamin. The brothers have become protectors. Judah has learned to speak the truth in love. And, to be one, and, and one by one, Joseph's prayers are finally being answered. But it's, it's taking time. And it's happening in ways that maybe they couldn't have foreseen. So my challenge for you is this. As, as we see God working in this family's life, continue to pray and to be, to be hopeful. To seek opportunities, as, as, as Joseph has, for, for restoration and Reconciliation. Looking for God to be the one to make the changes. Not forcing your family members to change. Not trying to guilt your family into changing. But recognizing the truth of the circumstances around you. And watching and waiting. Hopefully knowing that God can change those who we love. And God can work in their lives in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine sometimes. Knowing that, that as, as we surrender our lives. As, as Jacob surrenders all of his treasures before God. As we surrender our lives to God, God fills our lives with blessings. As the sin that keeps us from God, that keeps us from blessings, that keeps us even from the the comforts of this life, as those sins are repented of, as those sins are fled, as godly repentance is demonstrated, so God can then begin to bless and to fill and to restore and heal family dynamics. This family was horribly jacked up by, by generations of favoritism, by literal murder attempts, And yet God is going to knit them back together and they're going to come together. Joseph is not just reunited with Benjamin. When the the hug finally comes, and brother, brother, sister, I'm waiting for that chapter. When that hug finally comes, he's going to hug every single one of his brothers. He's going to hug Simeon. He's going to hug Levi. He's going to hug every single brother who threw him in the pit. And he's going to be reunited with all of them. This isn't a story of God partially restoring a family. This is a story of a family being fully restored. And, and there's a beauty beyond what we, we might, earth, in our earthly desires, want to expect. And so, as we see God working in this family, I hope it's an encouragement to you to continue to pray, to continue to know that God can do things in your own family, in your own circumstances, in your, in your work environment, your classroom environment, whatever it is. God can make those changes. So pray, friends. Let us pray. Father, thank you that you do not give up on us. Thank you that you can work on hearts with decades of stubbornness. Thank you that you can heal decade-old wounds. Thank you that you can help us to have hard conversations, that you can empower us when we don't know what to say. Pray, Lord, that you would give us trust in you. Help our faith, Lord, to grow for those in our lives who who are far from you, for those who have run from you, for those who have backslidden, for those who have, like Jacob, claimed to follow God and then fallen into idolatry and sin. We pray for those, Lord, that you would bring them back and restore those. Restore those who are dear to our heart, Lord. Bring those back to our church who have, who have run into the far country. Bring back those who are suffering, God. We know that you are the healer, the restorer, and the redeemer. Thank you, Lord, for this beautiful picture of a broken family in the Bible who you call back to being your own people. Thank you, Lord, that you work in ways that we would never expect, that you work in seasons and times and periods, through famines, through feasts, Lord. We thank you, God, for what you are doing in our own lives, and we pray that we would be ever more vigilant to pray and to trust and hope in you. In the blessed name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.